Welcome to States of Democracy, a podcast from WNET and PBS 13's Preserving Democracy Initiative. I'm Molly Enking. This week, we head to Florida to speak with WUCF reporters Steve Mort and Crystal Knowles at PBS Channel 24 in Orlando. Democrats and voting rights groups say uh, that what it all adds up to, in their minds at least, uh, is voter suppression. Republicans say it's about uh, voter integrity. We'll speak to them about the contentious redistricting process happening in Florida, the newly formed Election Crimes Investigation Unit, several ongoing federal lawsuits over various voting rights issues, and Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential ambitions. But first, I'm joined by Liz Avor, a senior policy advisor at Voting Rights Lab, to discuss the latest in election legislation. Liz, thanks so much for being here. So happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Liz, to start out, let's go to Virginia, where hundreds of voters were removed from the state's voter rolls. There are hundreds of voters that were removed from the voter rolls in Virginia that were previously disenfranchised due to a felony conviction. And, you know, they had their rights restored after they'd served their time and they were back on the rolls. And we recently, you know, found out that hundreds of those folks had their um, voter registrations canceled due to uh, probation violations, which um, should not result in them being removed from the from the rolls. Uh, they shouldn't be removed from the rolls unless they... Uh, were convicted of a, of a felony. So there is a congressional, been a congressional call for an investigation into what is causing those improper removals. Now let's talk about North Carolina. Two restrictive voting laws were enacted there last week. Yes, uh, the North Carolina legislature voted to override Governor Roy Cooper's vetoes of two election-related bills. The first one Uh, is SB 747. And that's a bill that restricts mail voting and and access for same-day voters. So significantly, it forces election officials to reject mail ballots that are received after election day, even if they were postmarked by election day. So under previous law in North Carolina, valid mail ballots were counted as long as they were postmarked by election day and received within three days of election day. And uh, research indicates that if this new law had been in effect in 2020, it would have resulted in the rejection of over 11,000 otherwise legitimate ballots. So it's a pretty meaningful change to the law. Uh, The bill also adds additional burdens on voters who register to vote at early voting locations. So those folks who are voting and registering to vote on the same day at early voting locations, it makes it more difficult for them to do so. It also makes it more likely that their ballots will be discarded, um, even if they are eligible voters. You know, the other North Carolina bill that was enacted last week also over the uh, veto of Governor Roy Cooper was SB 749. And that bill is what amounts to a legislative takeover of state and county election boards. Um, It shifts the appointment power in those boards uh, from the governor to the legislature. And it also uh, reconstitutes the boards in a way that just makes it more likely that they will be deadlocked. And deadlocked boards can be meaningful in a couple different ways. Um, 
One is that they can leave counties with only one early voting site if they can't come to an agreement about polling place locations. So some of these counties could end up with a lot fewer early voting locations than they've had in the past. Uh, It can also result in um, deadlock boards just being unable to certify election. And, uh, you know, it's also just worth noting that North Carolina's budget bill has also recently become law without the governor's signature. And the bill does a whole bunch of things. But in terms of its impact on elections, the most significant thing it does is prohibit the state from joining the Electronic Registration Information Center, or ERIC. Uh, And ERIC is an interstate agreement that states enter into where they share voter information um, to make sure that their voter registration rolls are uh, up to date and accurate. And this budget bill uh, actually explicitly prohibits the state from, from joining ERIC. Okay, well, that leads us perfectly into Wisconsin, uh, where the state legislature has also made preliminary moves to leave ERIC. Why are some states opting to leave the Election Registration Information Center? Yeah, so we've seen just in this past uh, past year that the that ERIC has become very politicized when it just has not been in the past. So it's a really kind of meritless attack on on a system that has been very effective at keeping uh, voter rolls up to date across the country. And uh, Wisconsin is, you know, really the latest state to be in discussions about leaving leaving ERIC. And uh, they just, the state just introduced last week um, a bill, AB 490, which would require the state to terminate its relationship with ERIC. And uh, that is a bill that we're going to be watching closely in the coming weeks and months. So in New York, Pennsylvania, and California, there have been some strides made toward improving voter access. Can you walk me through what's happening in each of these states? Yeah, just last month, New York Governor Kathy Hochul, uh, she signed a package of election bills, which included legislation that establishes no excuse mail voting in the state. So this new law is making New York the 36th state to allow voters to vote by mail without any special qualifying reason. So prior to the passage of the law, New Yorkers could only cast a ballot by mail if they had a special reason or a special excuse for needing to do so, such as you know being absent from the county on the day of the election or, um, or ill or having a disability that prevented them from going to the polls. But now um, all New Yorkers uh, can cast their ballot by mail. Uh, without needing one of those special reasons. Although it is important to note that the new law has been already challenged in court as uh, violating the state's constitution. So we're going to be watching to see if this new law is a, applies during the 2024 election. And uh, what's going on in Pennsylvania? Yeah, so also last month on September 19th, which was National Voter Registration Day, Governor Josh Shapiro announced that Pennsylvania implemented automatic voter registration. So some states implement automatic voter registration or AVR through legislation, and Pennsylvania just did it through executive action. So at uh, Governor Shapiro's direction, uh, every qualified resident in Pennsylvania who gets a new or renewed driver's license or state ID card at the DMV is going to be automatically registered to vote unless they opt out. And uh, this makes Pennsylvania the 25th state to enact or implement automatic voter registration. And in California. And just last week, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a package of election bills into law. So several of those bills expand voter access in a few different ways. 
one of them improves access to in-person voting uh, for voters with disabilities. Another of the bills helps ensure that every mail ballot that's cast by an eligible voter is actually counted. And the bill does that by making sure that election officials notify voters by phone, text, or email if there's a problem with their mail ballot envelope that would keep it from getting counted. And this process is called a notice and cure process. And we've seen a lot of states improving um, their process for notifying voters of issues with their mail ballots and giving them a chance to correct them over the past, uh, past few years. Another bill that just was recently signed in California uh, makes it easier for voters to return mail ballots and uh, also easier for uh, voters to receive replacement ballots if they if they lose theirs. So generally just making it a bit easier for uh, voters to cast mail ballots and um, also for voters with disabilities to vote in person. And Liz, looking forward, what will your team be tracking in the coming weeks? There's a lawsuit right now that is challenging a new law in Idaho that prevents high school and college students from using their student IDs at the polls. And uh, that lawsuit just uh, just was approved to move forward. So we're going to be watching to see if that law will be in effect in 2024. Um, we're also, of course, watching to see the results of this North Carolina litigation that is underway to see if those new restrictions are going to be in effect in, uh, in the 2024 election as well. Liz Avor, Senior Policy Advisor at Voting Rights Lab. Thank you so much for joining us. Listeners who want to learn more can also check out the Markup, Voting Rights Lab's weekly newsletter, where you can get more information about timely election news nationwide. Liz, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Now to get in-depth about all things Florida, I'm joined by Steve Mort and Crystal Knowles of WUCF. Thanks so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you. Steve, we'll start with you just right off the bat. I'm wondering if you can briefly summarize or characterize the last couple years of voting policy in Florida. What are some things that are unique to Florida? What would be important for an outsider to understand about how elections work in your state? Well, you know, there are many things that are unique to Florida, as I'm sure a lot of people will know. I would say that Republicans that I've spoken to in Florida say that this state now is at this point what they call the the gold standard uh, in election integrity. But the governor and the legislature have still in recent years pushed through uh, sweeping changes uh, to, to the state's election code, uh, to voting rules, to uh, changes to organizations uh, that help uh, in elections. So we've seen a lot of efforts uh, over the last two or three years um, to make it harder, for example, uh, to vote by mail. Florida was sort of one of the states that kind of led the way in vote by mail. Uh, it was pretty easy to do that here. Uh, there have been changes to that part of the law. Uh, also, the way that drop boxes are used uh, in this state. You remember that drop boxes were a, a big issue for, for President Trump after the, the 2020 election. I would say that, that Florida has been sort of a vanguard, if you like, in sort of pushing forward a lot of the changes that the Republican Party has sort of been demanding uh, on the national level. And... Crystal, statistically, where does Florida fall in terms of voter access? 
Yeah, when, when determining voter access and everything, you have there's a few things at play, right? And one study says that 30, uh, Florida ranks 33 out of 50 states. But then in another study, it says, well, because we have early voting, mail-in ballots, felon voting, and they check for ID, we rank nine. But with the 22 plus laws that passed this year when it comes to voting, those numbers can be affected. Now, what also needs to be put into consideration, some of the states that have really good transportation, public transportation ranked higher, right? So if your polling place is very far away and you don't have a car, how do you get there? So Florida's public transportation system, depending on where you live, can be pretty good. But in more secluded parts of the state, that's where it becomes a little bit more inaccessible. I would just pick up on something that, that Crystal s- said there. Where public transit falls down in Florida is in suburban areas, Orlando, Miami, and Tampa. And of course, if you have a very close election, it's going to be suburban communities that generally uh, in Florida and kind of decide what's going to happen in the election, in the outcome. And uh, those are the places where you know, you have uh, the least amount of transit infrastructure to help people get around. Um, the other thing I would say is that how you rank Florida in terms of how well it does in terms of voter access would really depend on who you are. Um, and it would really depend on sort of what metric you were using. If it was on election security and the tightness of regulations, it might rank pretty high. If it was just on the ability to turn up and vote, then it would rank pretty low. And for listeners who aren't familiar with Florida, can you just name a couple of the major players in terms of counties? Um, I just did an interview about uh, Texas last week, and we talked a lot about Harris County, which is viewed as this sort of lightning rod for the rest of the state. Does something like that exist in Florida as well? Miami-Dade is a blue county, but has a lot of Republicans, particularly amongst the Cuban-American population, also uh, new citizens uh, who are Venezuelan-Americans. And then President Trump made a big effort to win back support from young Cuban-Americans, Uh, But he also made large inroads with the sort of burgeoning Venezuelan-American community. And although Miami-Dade is a blue county, if Republicans can run up the margins there uh, with uh, the very diverse um, Hispanic community in that part of the state, well, then they've won the state. Steve, the Florida legislature passed several bills on voting and elections in the last couple of years. Can you walk us through the impact of these new laws, including SB 90 in 2021 and this year's SB 7050, like the omnibus voting bill, for example? Yeah, the legislature has been very busy. SB 7050 earlier this year was a really interesting one uh, because it essentially imposed a huge array of changes to Florida's election code. There are, I think, 27 uh, overall, uh, which are now on the books here. And I go through like a couple of them. First-time voters without a verified Social Security number or Florida ID are now required to vote in person. Third-party uh, voter registration organizations are required to re-register with the state every election cycle. 
and of course, people of color, uh, disproportionately we've seen in the statistics, are reliant upon those third-party voter uh, registration organizations to get them to, to to register them to vote. They go out into the communities and actually sign people up. Well, those organizations now have to re-register with the state every year. Um, in recent times, uh, the Florida legislature has done a lot of other things. It, when it passed the uh, law establishing um, the Election Crimes uh, and Security Unit, uh, within the Department of uh, Law Enforcement here in Florida, it increased the penalty for so-called ballot harvesting. Now, this is something which is fairly common uh, in other states. That's the practice where sort of volunteers and campaign workers go directly to the homes of voters, collect those completed ballots, and then take them uh, and drop them off at polling places, kind of en masse. Uh, and that allows people kind of who are not able to get to the polls to, to vote more easily. That's now illegal in Florida. There are tougher ID requirements now uh, for mail-in ballots. There's a requirement for supervisors uh, of elections to check the voter rolls uh, every year uh, for ineligible voters. They didn't previously have to do it on that timescale before. And Florida also enacted a law um, after the 2020 elections, uh, and this is the one you referred to, uh, cracking down on the hours uh, and location of drop boxes. Uh, as you remember, uh, former President Trump, after that election, he thought that there was a lot of fraud taking place uh, in that mechanism for voting. You know, he won the election in Florida, of course, but there were a lot of restrictions placed on where drop boxes could be around supervisors of elections offices uh, and also the hours that they could operate. Previously, you could just go to a, a drop box and drop off your ballot all the time. There now has to be somebody standing there supervising uh, that ballot drop box. Uh, it's kind of a dizzying array uh, of changes that have been made over the last couple of years in Florida. And, and a lot of people, particularly Democrats and voting rights groups, say uh, that what it all adds up to in their minds, at least, uh, is voter suppression. Republicans say it's about uh, voter integrity. And a couple of follow-up questions there. I read somewhere that one in five voters of color in Florida rely on these third-party voter registration organizations to register to vote. What are some examples of these organizations? Is it, uh, you know, vote.org? Florida Rising uh, is one of those sort of community groups that that pushes for, for changes for sort of social justice campaigning. Me Familia Voter is one of the organizations that uh, that helps uh, the uh, Hispanic Latino community uh, in getting to the polls. So you have a, a range of organizations in the African-American community, in the Latino community, in the Asian-American community that are sort of working with those organizations to sort of help them know what their rights are. And is it also an ESL issue? In some cases, English as a second language, yes, yes, yes. That's why Mi Familia Vota goes around in Spanish. Some of the Florida Rising, I'm sure that they have people that speak Creole because there's a lot of Haitian population in South Florida. So language is an issue as well. If you just came to the country, your first or second generation, you're not, you don't speak English that well. You're you're trying to fill fill in stuff in the ballot that you may not understand because the wording. It's very complicated. We've all voted and we've all been like, wait, why are there like 15 different things on one ballot? <laughs> so these different groups are trying to explain to people what you're voting for. 
And this leads me to, Steve, earlier you were speaking about the Florida Department of Law Enforcement's Election Crime Unit. This is relatively new, right? Ron DeSantis created it, and I believe, in yes. 2022. This is an agency created by the government to police people and arresting people. So in 2020, they found that about 1,000 people voted incorrectly, right? Of those, 300 double voted. And a lot of them were in areas like the villages and the population of the villages, well, elderly Republicans. A lot of them were snowbirds, but now moved here. And a lot of them are still snowbirds that move here, vote, go back and vote. So they double voted. And in 2018, Florida voters passed an amendment that restored the voting rights of former felons. But in 2022, 20 former felons were arrested after trying to vote uh, for improperly voting. Is that correct? Now, in 2022, there were 20 arrests that made headlines because Governor DeSantis is saying, hey, this is what we created the, the election police for. 20 cases of people who actually voted when they weren't eligible, but they were confused about who is eligible and who's not. So they voted. Well, what they didn't know, 2019, Governor DeSantis decided to add hmm, a little asterisk. You got to pay fees and fines before you're eligible to vote, along with, you know, people who have been convicted of sex crimes cannot or murder cannot. They did not know about the fees and fines. So they voted in 2020 and then poof, they start getting arrested last year. Now, a lot of these cases were dismissed, but uh, Governor DeSantis is trying to reopen those cases and saying, no, they need to face criminal penalties. Now, according to the people that I interviewed for a story I was working on this week, the arrests w- were done strategically to instill fear in the black community from from voting. And there's always that asterisk, like, are they adding more laws and restrictions? These people got their voter registration cards. So if I go apply to get a driver's license and they give it to me, yeah, I think I'm eligible to drive. It's up to the state to be able to to confirm that, especially when the governor's establishing a new restrictions on when a felon can vote or a former felon can vote. Now, there was another law that was passed this year Another asterisk, right? So now voter registration cards will have to have a little saying somewhere in the card saying, this is proof of registration, not not eligibility. Well, that's confusing, right? When when you register to vote and you get a card, do you think I can vote? Well, if you're getting, it's proof of registration. So you're saying you're giving me a receipt in the mail, (laughs) you know? A laminated receipt. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then the Florida, uh, what was it? The FRRC, which is Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, they filed a lawsuit earlier in the summer saying, um, you know, if, if you if supervisors of elections are sending out voter registration cards, there needs to be a centralized database where felons can see how many fees they owe or if they're eligible or ineligible, whatever the case may be, the same way you can check for your driver's license status anywhere in the state that you go to. So the fact that they're arresting people, it's instilling fear in this community. Steve, the redistricting process happens about once per decade after the census is completed. Right now, there's a federal lawsuit accusing Governor Ron DeSantis of intentionally discriminating against Black voters during Florida's redistricting process. 
Can you explain to listeners what's going on here and what's happening with this trial? The center of this lawsuit is on a district in North Florida called District 5. And what that district does is it connects uh, African-American communities. It snakes along the top uh, of the of the state in the panhandle there. It connects Jacksonville uh, in the uh, northeast of the state all the way across connecting African-American communities to Tallahassee. And that's the center of the, the whole problem. It was a black access district uh, and it is one that had been there for many years. Now, what happened here was the governor said, look, you know, I, uh, I argue that that is an illegal racial gerrymander. That district itself should not be allowed to exist under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Those challenging uh, the, the, the redrawn map that eliminated that long snaking district say that the governor violated in doing that the fair districts amendments of the Florida Constitution. The state courts have so far held that, as you would imagine, Florida's uh, constitution should be the one that is followed here. If, if either side appeals, it'll go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And at the heart of this is access for African-Americans to have their voice heard uh, at the ballot box. The judges in this federal case have indicated that they want to make a pretty uh, quick decision on it, probably by the end of the year. And that way, uh, if they throw out uh, the DeSantis-approved map, then that will give time for the Florida legislature itself to enact a new one in time for the 2024 election. And is there precedent um, in terms of voter uh, Florida voting districts? Uh, is this disputed district new? Has it been there for a while? Is there a history of creating districts uh, potentially along racial lines as uh, the governor is positing here? Yeah, I mean, Florida's got a pretty long, uh, rich history of uh, ending up in the courts uh, with, its, uh, with its voting districts. And this happened the last time that redistricting took place. Uh, this all ended up in the courts and, and the, the legislature had to go back to the drawing board. So if you like, it's not this legislature's first rodeo. It's the intent, I think, that, that matters. And, and, and the intent uh, is going to be what the courts are going to be considering when they try to decide whether or not Governor DeSantis, with his most recent maps, violated the, the voting rights of, of individual Floridians. And Steve, we've talked about this a bit already, but how is the Florida state government different from other states? That's a big question, but how is uh, the Florida legislature functioning? You know, the, the GOP currently have, since the last election, which Governor DeSantis, Governor DeSantis won the gubernatorial race by nearly 60%, the Florida legislature now has a Republican supermajority. So that supermajority can essentially do whatever it likes. It can be that sort of conveyor belt for the, for, the, for the governor's priorities. Under Governor DeSantis, there's been a lot of efforts at the state level to preempt local government control on many issues. So to sort of to, to diminish the power of local elected officials. And one could argue that in uh, the most recent gubernatorial election, uh, voters bought it. But, you know, the interesting part about Florida government is that the legislature traditionally has been pretty freewheeling and unafraid to push back 
uh, on the on on the governor's legislative priorities. Um, during the DeSantis era, that's not really been the case. I think there's been a sort of an understanding that you know the governor has higher political ambitions, uh, and and you know the part of the legislature's job on all kinds of controversial issues, guns, abortion, and so on, uh, has been to sort of bolster his conservative bona fides. So he's an incredibly polarizing figure. He's been an astonishingly powerful governor. He's sort of pushed an agenda that he thinks is appealing to to not only Florida voters, but but voters on a national level. And and you know, those sort of culture war issues, whether or not they're they're working for him or not, is 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 up for debate. Uh, but certainly there are um, a substantial number of people in Florida who, who who like that, that think he's done a good job. They may still vote for former President Trump when it comes to to the to the election, but uh, he's certainly been successful in making a name for himself to build uh, building a national profile. And I think you know political analysts would say that 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 was part of the goal. Would this be a fair characterization to say that? Florida has sort of become a ground zero for these policies that Ron DeSantis would like to see implemented nationally if he were to be elected? It's definitely a blueprint of what to expect. So he's really, really good at creating laws that will venture off into the bigger picture. But then he's also creating laws to to change laws, right? That he can now run for president while he still keeps his, his day job. So he's very good at that. Yes, he's he's very good at, he's been very good at setting an agenda for the National Republican Party. But he's very good at looking at, at, at the policies that have made waves that seem to have gained traction among, amongst the base and then implement them in, in Florida and sort of see how they go down. The abortion one's going to be very interesting because uh, Donald Trump uh, has called these six-week bans in Florida and elsewhere a terrible thing. Um, and how it actually ends up playing out, uh, you know, in, in the GOP primary, whether it's going to be a kind of a, a, a burden for Governor DeSantis or, or, or something that lifts him up is, you know, remains to be seen. And as reporters who have covered the state for a long time, bringing it back to voter access, voter suppression, voting laws in general, what do you think are going to be the biggest stories to watch in that space for the next year? I think what you're most likely to see changes on uh, in the coming months uh, will be on the redistricting issue. Uh, Because if the courts decide that the, the, the map we're currently working from in Florida is unconstitutional uh, and needs to be redrawn, then that's going to be very interesting to watch the legislature try to do that with a governor who's going to be watching it very, very closely. I mean, the governor had, had put his thumb on the scale when the legislature was drawing up its its original map that, that, that was rejected in the end by the governor, saying, you know, I'm going to veto this if you pass it, it's dead on arrival. Uh, so, you know, he feels strongly uh, on this issue. And if they have to go back and do a redraw, how does the governor handle that? And and what happens uh, to the future redistricting situation and, and, you know, congressional districts in Florida in the next election? I wanted to ask each of you in turn, why public media? 
So working for public broadcasting has such a good reputation for being neutral, for being neutral and giving you the information. And I've said this many times about working at WUCF and, you know, our show Newsnight is the fact that we dive deep into one or two topics per show. We give you all the information. So that way, when you go to the polls, you know what Amendment 4 is or whatever new amendments out there. So we're, we're giving all these big topics into small consumable pieces for our viewers, and they get to make the choice of what they want to do. I would definitely agree uh, with that last part that, that, that Crystal uh, mentioned there. Um, and it, and it kind of goes to this whole effort that preserving democracy is that, um, you know, a healthy democracy depends on an informed electorate, right? And um, if you don't have an informed electorate, then you're in trouble. And I, I, you know, I think at the moment, the media landscape is so fragmented, uh, you know, people are in in their silos, there's a lot of sort of reinforcement of existing views. And I think that is obviously not what we're here to do. And, you know, we're in a sort of a climate of lack of trust of the media, of the news and information source, traditional news and information sources. And as Crystal mentioned, uh, public television, there's still a lot of trust and, and, and we should make sure that we are living up to our reputation, which is to, to supply people with, with unbiased coverage of the news, but also the, just the truth. I mean, our job is not to be artificially neutral. <laughs> our job is to sort of tell people what, what the truth is uh, and, and, you know, and, and stay true to that. And I think that's the only way you break through in a, in a time when, when people just don't believe half the things they hear. Steve Mort, executive producer and host of Newsnight, and Crystal Knowles, senior producer at Newsnight at WUCF. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you to our listeners for supporting our new show. Subscribe if you like what you heard, and don't forget to share with your family and friends.